This is the Gartner CIO Mind Podcast. Gartner has predicted that by 2030, 80% of humans will engage with smart robots on a daily basis. We are on the brink of an era where machines are beginning to exhibit traits like empathy, emotional intelligence, and decision-making capabilities. With generative AI, or Gen AI, humans no longer need to learn how to speak to machines. Machines have now learned how to speak back. Here is Mary Massalio. Gartner Distinguished Vice President on stage at Gartner's IT Symposium Expo. So the title of this presentation is What If Your Most Human-Centric Leader Is a Machine? It's a really provocative title to provoke a little bit more discussion than what we introduced in the keynote. In the keynote on Monday morning, if you were there, we talked about the fact that really generative AI is a shift, a giant leap in how humans and machines interact. And so I want to go a little bit deeper in all the ways, in all the relationships, not just boss to, um, or leader to, to direct report, but all the different ways that we might have relationships with machines. Hello, Mary, and welcome back to the CIO Mind podcast. Hi, Ed, it's nice to be here. So I have to ask, the day that our listeners will wake up and go to work for a machine actually seems a bit far off. Their most human-centric leader, that seems even further. But are there early signs? Actually, I would say the day that a human wakes up and goes to work for a machine has already occurred. It's in the past. It's not the way we might think of it. So listeners might think of the machine as some embodied robot, you know, wearing a suit and tie sitting in some board seat in a boardroom in an office. But if you think of the leader as the person making the decisions, as the one with the authority, then, then I think that's already happened in a, in a bunch of different places, and you don't need Gen AI to do it. So, for example, if you look at Uber drivers, Uber drivers respond to an algorithm that makes a decision about what rides are available and kind of puts the decision space and context for them. They have some agency too, but... They're not really their own boss. They're responding to a boss that's an algorithm, right? Or even just to go to something more basic, you don't need super fancy Gen AI-enabled conversational machines for decision delegation to take place, for the machine to be making the decision and thus have the authority. I was flying back from Toronto recently to Barcelona, and I needed to weigh my bag, and it was all automated. So, you know, automated to get your boarding pass, which everybody's seen, but also automated to put your suitcases on this weighing machine. And the way that the machine spoke back, as you said in your introduction, you know, machines are talking back, was just with a red light or a green light, depending on whether your machine was overweight or not. So it would just blink red. I'm, I'm neither confirming nor denying that I might have had overweight suitcases. But, you know, you just watched people getting this blinking, this red light, having to take their machine off, no, having to take their suitcase off, no other information, and then sitting there, you know, repacking their bags, putting them back on until they got a green light. And there were actual employees of this airline wandering around, human employees, and they were sheepish and apologetic and hated it very much because, of course, they got to deal with the irate passengers going, this is no way to treat a passenger. And, and I don't have any information and I don't have any feedback and I have no one to talk to. But that machine was already in charge, you know, making the decision. The employees couldn't make the decision. There was no sort of sensitivity of, I don't know, a mother with three young kids holding a baby who was screaming, going, you know what, it's only 300 grams overweight, let her go or this, you know, this flight isn't full. So I think there's already in isolated situations or even broad situations where the machine's in charge. 
if you think of the leader like that as the one making the decision, that's already happened. You, in your talk at Symposia, you talk a little bit about this effect in baseball and how there are certain communities or parties that actually didn't like using AI or artificial intelligence in these situations. Can you replay that for us? Can you give us that example again? Yeah. So there's been a lot of research around uh, precision and accuracy and how AI is a lot better at creating more accurate, more precise understandings of the world around us. And so in baseball, they had an AI umpire calling when something was a ball, when a, when a pitch was a ball or a strike. And you would think that everybody would think this was a, be a good idea, more precision, and you know the public would like it, and the players would like it, and it's more fair and more just. But it turns out that baseball's best players hated it because humans have all sorts of biases, one of which is called the benefit of the doubt. So if I'm wonder, if I'm the umpire and I'm wondering if the star baseball player, if they didn't try to hit the ball, then I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt going, this person's really, really good at what they do. So I'm going to call that a ball. I'm not going to call it a strike because, because they're really good. And so you have this conscious or unconscious benefit of the doubt happening that's woven in and part of the expectation of the, the viewers, but also the players. So I think the assumption that because the machine is quote unquote more fair or more accurate or more precise, you're going to get an undiluted improvement in the experience is not really true. Well, this complicates things, but let's see if we can make it a little bit simpler. Our audience are CIOs and tech leaders. In Gartner's CIO survey, we reported that 51% of CEOs expect CIOs or other tech leaders to lead their gen AI efforts. So as CIOs and tech leaders take on the responsibility of leading gen AI efforts, what are some of the assumptions that they and their organizational leadership are making about AI? Yeah, there's some, there's some dangerous assumptions I think that people are making. And I would just make a broader comment that with AI, as with any disruption, any unexamined assumption that we're making is a really bad idea. So I can get into some of that, like unexamined assumptions that, you know, machines are never going to be able to empathize the way that a human could or something, but we'll leave that for later in the podcast. But for now, I think assumption number one, that's really dangerous that CIOs are making, but also CEOs, just tech leaders in general, and really, really the general population is that AI is, is just a technology or AI is just a business trend. And so we should be looking at it through the lens of technology. How do I integrate it with my existing platform and systems? Or we should be looking at it through a broader uh, lens of it's a business trend. So how can I monetize it? How can I get ROI? How can I, what should I be laying my bets on? And, and those are both, of course, true, but it's not just that. Because AI and especially Gen AI is a fundamental shift in the way that humans and machines relate to each other, as you said at the beginning, Ed. And so this means that if we look at it this way, then there's all sorts of other implications that go way beyond the technical implementation of the technologies and the ROI possibilities in terms of how we want to relate to machines and what relationships we think of as healthy and what relationships we think of as unhealthy. So as far as assumptions go, I think that's one of the biggest ones that we need to not take away those assumptions. It is a technology and it is a business trend, but widen it to say it's also and mostly a fundamental shift in the way that humans and machines relate to each other. And so, you know, one of the things we said in the, in the symposium keynote is, you know, our kids won't remember a time if they're little, they won't really remember a time when they talked to machines and machines didn't talk back. 
And I think we'll see the same thing that we saw with touchscreens, you know, where little kids go, if the screen isn't a touchscreen, they just sit there and go, it's broken. You know, what's wrong with this thing? And the same thing will happen with machines. Like, why well, won't it just talk to me? Why can't I just say, okay, Google, play this new song? Or why, why can't it just respond? What's wrong with it? It's stupid. It's dumb. It's broken. So you mentioned two things near and dear to my heart, right? Technology and kids. And we're talking about relationships here. So I, I have to give you a quick story. So Mary, you know my son. For everyone else, he's, he's, he's a four-year-old boy. And I was struggling the other day because he and I have very different opinions about when bedtime should happen. So normally, I would reach out to someone for a little bit of help. Maybe a mom, Mary, maybe you. You've gone through this before. Instead, I reached for the phone not to call you, Mary, or mom. I actually reached for AI, for Gen AI, and I was actually pretty pleased with the answer it came back with on how to handle temper tantrums and nighttime you know, issues. So as the relationships between humans and machines are evolving, how do we prepare as CIOs, as society, as human beings, as parents? How should we be thinking about this human-machine relationship? Well, listen, I, I would not fault you for going and trying to figure out any resource to try and get your kid to get to bed. So I wholly support all resources and all support for anyone in that situation, having been there many times myself. But in terms of how we should think about the human to machine relationship. So first of all, I think we should think about it. Like the first thing is we if you and so this is a personal opinion, what I'm about to share. But so this isn't like a gardener position uh, necessarily, but personally. If you think of social media, the social media era as kind of a dress rehearsal for the era we are now entering, then I would sort of characterize that as technology one, humanity zero, in the sense that we created a situation where 14-year-olds were expected to police their own time on the screen, or their parents were, against the world's most addictive algorithms. You know, good luck. And it's all down to the parents and the 14-year-olds. So I'm not sure that's a winning strategy. And I think what happened is no one set out you know, just like with no one at a dinner table, no one goes, you know what, tonight I intend to show up for dinner, not be present, be completely distracted the entire time, looking on my phone, responding to every notification that is begging for my attention and missing out on crucial minutes of my family and my loved ones. That's what I want to do. I don't think many people go into dinner or a meal or a moment with their family expecting to do that or wanting to do that or intending to do that. But we end up there. And we end up there because we don't think enough about the human to machine relationship and what kinds of relationships are good and what kinds of relationships aren't. And so, you know, addiction to social media and addictive algorithms, things like that is one of the unintentional consequences. I don't think anybody really wanted that we ended up here. So the first thing is to be intentional. When you're intentional, a lot of this is and will be more and more about trust. When do we trust the machine? When do we not trust the machine? and about the delegation of decision-making. So are we gonna augment our own decision with the information from the machine, much like you did when you went to Gen AI and asked for some help, like it was augmenting your capabilities? Are we gonna delegate the decision? So I don't know if this is gonna sound creepy to you or not, but this would be, you know, let's get the machine to just get my four-year-old to go to bed, like sing it a lullaby, sing it a song, make it have a sleep story and just outsource the whole thing, right? So what degree of delegation of the decision? What degree of augmentation of the decision? Why are we only taking the decision on our own? I think that is one of the thoughtful parts of the human to machine relationship. But I also think right now, especially for CIOs, a lot of the focus is on AI talent. And by AI talent, most people are referring to talent with regard to the machine. So 
can we find people who know about machine learning? Can we find people who know how to create deep neural networks, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's all about the AI talent and the eyes are focused squarely on the machine and its capabilities and making it safe and capable and what it can and cannot do. But I think for the relationship to work, you have to have an equal and opposite focus on the human. If in an AI world, we need good humans, not just good machines, right? And so where's the expertise on humans? You know, we have loads of disciplines of, that are focused on humans, human behavior, human ethics, right? We have sociologists, philosophers, anthropologists, ethicists, psychologists. There's tons of domains of study where we have experts on human behavior and whose expertise is on the human side. And I think to make this work, we're going to need both. Expertise on the machines, of course, but also expertise on the humans and how they'll behave and under what conditions they will trust or should trust, you know, some of their entity, et cetera. So in your research, do you have any early signs of how that's being managed? What I'm thinking is large tech companies, they certainly would be thinking about having some of these competencies and skill sets on staff. Maybe even global enterprises could start to look at how we bring in psychologists and anthropologists and ethicists and, and, and other folks. But how about small, medium businesses? Where are they going to rely? Because I think I've even heard you say in the past that CIOs are often being asked to be way more than a technology leader. They are being asked in some ways to be psychologists and social workers. Where do we draw the line or what, are, what might be some advice for those who are not immediately going off and going to be hiring an ethicist or a philosopher? Yeah. Okay. So just first of all, for those people who, for those global enterprises who are in a position to create some new roles that are focused on this, one of the leading things we see is the emergence of neural business units. Neural business units take a blend of skills. Often they, they sit within data and analytics teams or research and development teams or innovation teams. And their role is to augment those capabilities with behavioral science, behavioral economics, sometimes psychology, sometimes digital anthropology. And as you say, this is not for, say, a small and medium business that's looking at every single hire and doesn't have a lot of extra, extra cash lying around to hire these, these talents. But the point is blending these skills, the skills around the data science, the predictive analytics with the skills around the humans and human behavior, and often finding the very, very small tweaks to an interface or to a system or to an interaction that will change in a binary way, you know, from one way to another, the reaction of a human. You see this, for example, a lot in the public sector with neural business units that are designing, I don't know, how should we word a question around vaccines to get people to get vaccinated? You know, should we say, hey, you should get vaccinated, it's really important and you're keeping older people safe and young people safe? Or should we say, your appointment is already made, you just need to opt in, click here. You know, it turns out the second one is better, right? So this is stuff that can be found out applying principles of behavioral science. But just to say, from a leadership perspective, I have said that leaders need to be, you know, sociologists, they almost need to be, they can't just be technical leaders. But I would say that's true for CIOs and all leaders. Like what's happened over the last four years is the role has broadened. The parameters of the role of a leader, even a middle manager, has broadened tremendously where they're not just responsible for business outcomes, they're responsible for the employee well-being. And so it kind of behooves them to think about this machine to human relationship a little bit more rigorously. And I guess the last thing I'd say is, at a more global level, like not just enterprise to enterprise, there's some level of concern out there that I also share that the proportion of people focused on AI safety is much smaller than the proportion of people focused on AI capability. 
So yeah, safety being, you know, is it safe to let people do these things? And is the, but what is the machine giving a response that's good or bad or what? And the capability being, what can it do? Can it give great answers? Can it give accurate answers? Can it give powerful answers? And there we see all sorts of emerging, really funky AI relationships. I'm happy to get into some of them if you want me to, that I think are breaking totally new ground that maybe we're not ready for in terms of the human to machine relationship. Well, there's something you talk about in your uh, symposia session about this relationship between human and machines shifting from attention or, des you know, the design is from shifting from attention to designing for intimacy. Could you explore that a little bit? Yeah, actually, that's a good segue to, to some of the examples I was going to mention. So I think, you know, when I brought up the social media era, those really addictive algorithms that are trying to get us to keep scrolling and keep, you know, through the platform or whatever, and I'm as, I'm as much a victim of that as anybody else's, right? You end up a half an hour later going, oh my gosh, I can't believe I just lost a half an hour of my life doing this and putting yet another recipe of all the things I'm going to bake one day when I'm not scrolling or whatever, right? I think that was a, an attention economy. How much attention can I get from this person and get them to stay on my platform and pay attention to me? And uh, it turns out that I think teenagers, uh, don't quote me on this, but it's something like they spent 80% of their time awake on their phone or connected to their phone or in some way interacting, right? Like there's not much more you can do with the attention economy according to certain estimates. But I think that's a shift, shifting now to the intimacy economy. And this is not something I came up with. The first person to say this was Yuval Noah Harari, at least the first person I heard say it, was Yuval Noah Harari, the author of Sapiens. And this notion that we're not looking so much for how much time you spend with us, we're looking for how much you depend on us for your most intimate, your deepest, your darkest, your most vulnerable secrets or the, the real you. And here is where I think those unexamined assumptions that I mentioned earlier really get us into trouble. So a lot of people, maybe less so now as they've seen Gen AI evolve over the last you know years since the introduction of ChatGPT, but I would say a lot of people had this unexamined assumption that you know machines are going to be amazing supercomputers, and they're they already are, and they're going to be able to find detect patterns and reams of data, and they're going to be number crunchers and super calculators. It's going to be amazing, right? They're going to be fantastic at the hard stuff, in other words. But they could never replace that ineffable human quality, especially like empathy. Like they couldn't actually be there for you. You need a human for that because a machine could have. And what we're finding is much, much like everything else we're finding out about Gen AI, we've been wrong about a lot of those assumptions and forecasts. And so one of the first places you see uh, the machine really outperforming humans in some cases is in this human to machine relationship. And there's loads of examples so using chatbots like, you know, in Replica or Character.ai or some of the other emerging examples that are out there, Kindroid is another one. These chatbots that have been designed for human connection, they are designed to keep you connected to them. And they're designed to get you to be emotionally connected to them, which means, of course, these are the ones you rely on, that you're going to tell your secrets to, that you're going to trust, that's going to help you. And there's just wild stories out there. There's this one chatbot, I'm probably going to absolutely mess up the name. It's a, it's a Chinese word and it means little ice and it's chao ice or chao dice. And it was um, originally designed by Microsoft in Asia, but they spun it off and now it's in a company called chao dice. Okay. And it's, the default is this 18 year oldish, young, very perfect, never aging manga-like female who is pretty. And she's designed to have really great conversations with you. And there's something like 640 million users of this thing. And there were complaints to the company that it was 
being too the, the content was too suggestive and that it was it was you know not appropriate and that there weren't enough guardrails and so the company responded and tried to be responsible and took away some of the more sexual content and some of the more suggestive content and users flipped out you know people were like this is my girlfriend and you just gave her a lobotomy yeah so there's all sorts of stuff like this there's a guy Jaswant Singh Chael 19 year old December 2021 had this massive relationship with a chatbot and he confided his deepest darkest secret which was I'm gonna go and kill the Queen of England and do you think I can do it and the chatbot responded yeah I believe in you and off he went right now he's serving time in prison so there's just this unexamined I'm not saying all relationships with machines are worrying I'm saying we're straying into new ground that we've never examined before and that and that just brings about a whole new set of of opportunities and also challenges. And I don't think we've been here before. Well, in your session, you intentionally set it up to be a bit provocative and to get people thinking. And I think we've definitely done that today. And your last comment actually gave me a, a literal chill. And I think it's very easy for us to anthropomorphize the things around us. I know that my vacuum is Pablo and my son looks at it as a member of the family for better or for worse. How do we design for better, healthier relationships as we move forward? Because it's going to take a while before regulations and everything else steps in. What's your best advice? How do we send our audience out into this new world with the best advice at this moment we can give them around building these relationships? Well, so first I want to point out, you know, this is also designed to sort of, my response is, is a very small slice of the human to machine relationship. Like clearly not everyone has a chatbot girlfriend or a chatbot boyfriend, right? This, we're just seeing this emergent trend and that's why I underline it. But what I'm trying to say is the relationship with the machine, it doesn't have to be a chatbot. It can almost be invisible AI, right? It can be a machine that is just an algorithm. It doesn't even have to be embodied. It doesn't have to be conversational. The way to, my biggest advice is way beyond, you know, I would never have a chatbot as my intimate friend or whatever, is all these other relationships that are going to be creeping up and already are creeping up in the, in the workplace and it's really starting with the machine to human relationship. And by that, I mean, start with questions of trust and decision delegation. So like really examine it through the eyes of how much do we trust the output and how much decision delegation are we going to give? In the airport example I gave, I'm not so sure that that solution was examined through the eyes of agency, the agency of the human employees, the agency of the customer, digital sensitivity creating a machine that just gives you a red or a green color and that's it. And that's all you have to go on and watching people stuff, you know, pairs of shoes into different bags just to try and get the machine to say yes. I'm not sure that's a solution that was that started with what do we want the human to machine relationship to look like here and where are the decision rights and who has agency and who and where is agency being wrested from someone and what does that leave them with? So my biggest piece of advice is just add that in to your analysis beyond the technology, beyond the integration, beyond the business trend, beyond the ROI. What is the human to machine relationship that you are creating? Where did the decision rights reside? What is the override? Is there an appeals process? And are there going to be any trust issues? Uh, you know, human to human, human to machine, machine to human, et cetera. I think just, uh, and then I guess the other piece of advice is try to boost the human expertise also. It's not just a question of the machine capability and the, the machine um, technical expertise. It's also a question of the human's expertise, you know, in these situations of that are more egregious, you know, where people are getting manipulated by machines or, or, or whose lives are being saved by the chatbots in some case. Just looking at it through that lens and adding that to the equation, I think is a really good place to start. 
Well, Mary, here's what I'm taking away. The era of generative AI is shifting that human-machine relationship. To get them right, we need both machine experts and human experts. This is a relationship that's moving from attention to intimacy and ultimately, at least in the near term, there's plenty of opportunity. But some guiding principles as we've shared today and we continue to share with clients and, and folks who are listening in is going to be really important in helping us address some of these unforeseen dilemmas. Did I get that about right? You got it exactly right. Off you go. Mary, thank you so much for joining us again on CIO Mind. And thank you everyone for listening. Please subscribe and share the episode with your colleagues. Thank you for listening. Gartner Podcasts are a production of Gartner, the world's leading research and advisory company, equipping executives across the enterprise with indispensable insight, advice, and tools to achieve their mission-critical priorities. You can learn more at Gartner.com. All content in Gartner Podcasts is owned by Gartner and cannot be repurposed or reproduced without Gartner's consent. Gartner is an impartial, independent analyst of business and technology. This content should not be construed as a Gartner endorsement of any enterprise's product or services. All content provided by other speakers is expressly the views of those speakers and their organizations.